Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Lizanne Saunders joins us now, the perfect guest to discuss this with. Yep. Charles Schwab, the chief investment strategist. Lizanne, great to get your time on this program Good this morning. morning. Just your reaction, Lizanne, to the news of the last 24 hours that we were talking about through much of yesterday afternoon into this morning. Yeah, it, what was interesting yesterday is how many headlines I read or saw or heard that said, you know, Biden will be raising the capital gains tax. And that's obviously not how legislation works. So um, it, it's the proposal. Uh, this has been telegraphed clearly. A little bit of a shock yesterday, obviously, in terms of market reaction. But it's a trial balloon. And uh, much like with, with uh, any proposal, you tend to get it watered down as you go through the sausage making in Washington. And there are some moderate Democrats uh, that are not necessarily in favor of significantly higher taxes. So what Ultimately, this looks like when um, it, whatever that is, broadly on taxes, not just cap gains, is probably something different than what sits in the, the proposal at this point. And then historically, it's it's just a mixed bag. It really hasn't had a significant impact on the market, capital gains tax changes in either direction. I'm not here to say don't worry about it. It's, it's good for the market, but there's not a lot of indication that it, it causes serious damage in and of itself to the market, but we'll have to see. Liz, a lot of our uh, listeners and viewers don't know that you've had a real interest in public policy, including your service to various administrations on fiscal policy. Let me give you a William Gale question over at Brookings. If we raise the capital gains tax, is it possible we'll bring in less revenue? Well, so that's the theory out there. Some of the math that's been done, and of course, it's going to be biased depending on if you're, you know, part of an yep. institute that's more on the right-leaning side or the left-leaning side. But, um, you know, there was some data out yesterday on an assumption, if it goes all the way up to the 43 and change, that that would actually be a revenue loser, that there is some point on the scale that maximizes the revenue. And if the goal is to increase revenue, then you should focus on whatever that percentage is. If it's an egalitarian goal, then that's a whole different ball of wax. When it comes to the markets, though, Lizanne, a lot of people were saying that some of the highest bid stocks or Bitcoin, for example, would suffer the most on an ongoing basis as people try to get out, uh, solidify their gains ahead of these capital gains taxes. Do you think that type of selling has legs that it will continue or do you think that it was sort of a knee jerk reaction and frankly is a buying opportunity? Well, I, I think it's sort of yes and yes, and not so much the buying opportunity. It was a knee-jerk reaction, but that doesn't mean that all the, the, the selling is done and that, that one day gives you an entry point. I, I think I think sentiment has been so frothy and so stretched, and, and we've talked about this before in this program. In and of itself, that doesn't suggest a contrarian move in the economy, but it increases the risk to the extent there's some sort of negative catalyst. That's what happened to a large degree last year. We really fraught the sentiment in January and February, and then, of course, we got the mother of all catalysts with COVID. Um, I think this could represent one of those catalysts that could increase choppiness. And to your point, Lisa, I think it does put downward pressure on where momentum is greatest, where gains are most lofty. And you do see that in history. You see some churning. You see a denting in momentum. Um, you do tend to see a bit of a weight on some of the higher-valued stocks. And, and, uh, and any selling that occurs in anticipation of that 
of course, tends to be focused in stocks that have the biggest uh, biggest gains. Well, Lizanne, putting aside the capital gains taxes for just a moment, we've gotten earnings that have beaten, on average, pretty significantly. They've been very good. What is the market looking to fundamentally? If yes, it is perhaps uh, getting a bit of a hit from this proposal, which is not going to necessarily get uh, get passed as it is. What does that tell you about what's driving the market right now? Well, here's here's the funny history about earnings and, and stock market performance. We know they're connected, but there's uh, more of a, a lead lag situation than I think people generally understand. If you go back the entire history of the S&P 500, you break earnings into various zones, maybe no surprise, the worst market performance has come when earnings are in total plunge mode, down more than 25%. But once the market starts to price in the inflection point back up, the best performance comes when earnings are still down between negative 25% and negative 10%. It's that acceleration off the lows that gives you the huge pop in uh, the stock market in anticipation of the improvement. By the time you get to more than 20% earnings growth, you're down into the very low single-digit return territory because at that point, the market has priced in the, the surge. So I think a lot of that is what you're seeing. Uh, you, you've seen a market that over the past year has done extraordinarily well, in part pricing in the earnings growth we're now experiencing. What's your SPX level out 12 months? I mean, give us the Saunders level of bullishness. Uh, you know I don't do that. <laughs> I, I know, but give me a tone. Give me a I like getting Lizanne, it's Friday. Nobody's like watching. Nobody's money. listening. I think it's they're bickering. It's of no value to individual <laughs> investors. I don't know where the market's going to close today at see how she gets let going? alone see that, John? December 31st. Tom, it, I just this. don't see the value of that exercise. Lizanne, forgive him. You know, I've done this routine with Tom now for years, and he's still asking you that question. Lizanne Saunders there, Charles Schwab, Chief <laughs> Investment Strategist. Lizanne, it's great to catch up. Sarah House with us with Wells Fargo. Their senior economists were thrilled that she could join this morning or work at Tulane in the London School of Economics. Sarah, um, I really want to go to one part of your note, which takes me back to John Taylor of Stanford, and that is anchored, unanchored. How close are we to unanchored inflation? Well, I think we might be closer than the Fed really thinks right now. And I think importantly, in terms of how much lead time that the Fed has regarding whether inflation expectations are actually getting away from them, it's short. It's it's very, very short. They don't have uh, it doesn't inflation expectations for all the focus that the Fed gives on them isn't a very reliable indicator in the short term of, of how quickly inflation is, is moving. It's very much informed by the current inflation environment, which means as we continue to see inflation heat up over this year, expectations could get away from the Fed rather quickly. And then we get language from a central bank, I guess tapers the phrase, but I'll, I'll let you decide what the language is. Russia's central bank moments ago, jawboning up a rate increase out there. Ruble moves fractionally from a 75.50 down, breaking through 75 stronger Russian ruble. When, What kind of language do you expect to see from an American central bank when and if they have to go with the anchor or the unanchored, I'd say? Well, I think in terms of, of Fed chatter and, and what the Fed's communicating well, right now, 
I, I think that all eyes really are are on what constitutes substantial progress right now. So, you know, Chair Powell and other members have been pretty clear that the, the next step on this path to normalization is, is going to come from tapering. And they've been in many ways more vague about what constitutes what they need to see for substantial further progress relative to what they've actually seen towards the, the Fed funds rate. And so um, we're looking in, in terms of whether they're still keeping uh, keeping that phrasing around on track for substantial further progress. And really, it comes down to, I think, more so what's happening on on the labor market front. We know we're going to get this pop in inflation this year, but that is not the Fed's primary concern. It's really coming down to what we're what we're seeing in terms of the labor market and if that's moving along nicely enough as far as Yeah, and John, what's so important here is wage, wage inflation. We're months from wage inflation, aren't we? Oh, totally. That's why we're not going to have a conversation about raising interest rates for a long time and this will come down to the balance sheet so sarah is this just a case of see you in june I think next week's meeting very much is. So I think it's going to be going to be very quiet, uh, non-event. I don't think we're going to get really any change in tone at, at all coming from the Fed as much as Chair Powell will be pre- pressed in his press conference. And so I think in, in you know, every meet Fed meeting is important, but some more so than others. And, and this is just not one of them. Tom's right to bring up the wage issue. Let's talk about the compositional story that I think we'll spend a lot of time on over the next couple of months. What will the wage picture look like with that in mind? Well, I think the, the wage picture is actually firming a lot faster than than people expected. So, yes, we're down about eight and a half million jobs relative to where we were before COVID. But there are pockets that are, are really struggling for workers right now. And in fact, we're already seeing wage growth firm. Look at what's happened with the ECI in terms of manufacturing, in terms of transportation, in terms of construction. And we get ECI data next week for the first quarter. And I think that'll show that we were seeing uh, wages. On, on that measure, which does control for composition, you know, we're increasing, you know, two and a quarter, almost two and a half percent. That's, you know, almost a, a full percentage point about above what we saw coming out of the Great Recession. And so we actually are seeing more more wage pressures than than we have in, in prior periods. So there there's more um, in terms of labor inflation coming than I think um, people are appreciating right perhaps, now. Perhaps. But the question is for how long, right? Because there are these frictions that people talk about, whether it's leisure trying to bring back workers in mass who perhaps have child care issues or other things that aren't coming back. Back, or just manufacturing jobs that have ramped up that are going to wane as people go back to experiences. I mean, how much is this temporary and how much is this permanent wage inflation that's structural and speaks to perhaps less slack in the labor market than people had expected? Well, I think you know, we tend to see wages move move pretty slowly. There's not, you know, in terms of the trend, it's it's not terribly volatile. So I think the fact that we already seem to find a floor in that trend, it, it does suggest that we'll continue to see gradual upward pressure. And then I think it also comes back to what we talked about at the start of, of this conversation, expectations. And so if we are seeing stronger inflation and it does take more for workers to come back, then then I think you could see that wage trend continue to, to move Meanwhile, we're dealing with a proposal from the Biden administration with respect to higher capital gains taxes that does shift the focus of where the taxes go, that basically push people into spending more on people, on things, rather than just putting their money into capital markets. Do you have any modeling for what this would do to growth, what this would do to investment? Is there any precedent for this type of proposal? 
Well, I think in terms of, of how this could potentially affect the outlook and the fact that it could help um, stabilize the, the deficit, you know, we saw the deficit actually increasing before COVID and that was really driven by more entitlement spending than, than anything else. So to the extent that we are seeing um, plans for, for spending uh, that actually might go to factors that boost productivity productive capacity in, in the economy. I think that has a very different implication um, in terms of, of how that spending manifests. And if you are actually trying to meet some of that with, uh, with actually bringing, bringing in stronger, um, stronger revenues as, as well. So I think it really depends on, on how we are spending, whether that raises the, the productive capacity um, in terms of that, that deficit outlook. And I think when it comes to the, the focus on corporations right now, it's, it's really a matter of, of following the money. You know, labor share of income has been declining since the seventies. And so I think if we are looking at, at ways to potentially stabilize that that deficit picture, you are going to have to to shift more towards the the corporate side. Uh, Sarah, very quickly here, what do you see on capex? What's a Wells Fargo prediction of what companies actually do? I don't buy for a moment. There's a capex plan when I see the share buyback tone of the first earnings reports. Well, I think we've we've already seen a lot of capex in in many ways pulled forward. At least when it comes to the the high tech capex that has helped you know so many of us work work from home. But I think as we continue to see some of these supply constraints affecting more of the good side of, of the economy, you are seeing some of that that more traditional capex um, come back as as companies are thinking a little bit more about expanding capacity. Because right now, for many companies, they're losing out on sales because they they cannot meet demand. And so I think that helps underpin the, the CapEx recovery that's already well underway. Sarah, we've got to leave it there. Sarah House of Wells Fargo on the U.S. economy and the outlook with the Federal Reserve meeting just next week. Right now on the fixed income space, John, I want you to bring in Priya Misra with TD Securities because on a full faith and credit basis, we are at a surprising point this late April. Yeah, a really difficult point that people are really struggling to read. Let's bring in Priya Misra of TD Securities. Priya, the data's better, yields are lower, and everybody's scratching their head trying to make sense of it. Right. And, I, you know, that's been the biggest question is the move over. Well, we would argue if you look at if you decompose the, the, the decline in rates, it's all been led by real rates. So I think the markets finally heard the Fed, that the Fed is going to be extremely patient, that they are going to see act data, not just forecasted data. And so therefore, with the Fed controlling the front end, not even talking about tapering, I think that limits how much rates can rise. But when we look ahead, you know, there's a lot of supply. We have auctions next week. We have data that's going to continue to look better. Um, we do think that rates are going to continue to head higher. So I'm still looking for 2% uh, on the 10-year by year end. So you don't think we've tested the tolerance, really, of this market, this economy at 175, 177? No, I think... Um, it- you know, particularly when we look at real rates, real rates are, were not that high, even in the move. Much of it was inflation expectations. So therefore, and, and, and you look at broader financial conditions. I mean, that's what the Fed's looking at. Broader financial conditions are still extremely easy. So when you talk about testing, I would look at real rates closer to zero on the 10-year. I think that's a level where the economy shows signs of stress and financial conditions start to tighten. That's when the Fed will step in, but we're pretty far from there. Priya, can 10-year Treasury yields rise to those levels to your expected 2% by year-end if we don't get a commensurate move of any sort over in Europe, over in Japan? In other words, can the U.S. go it alone with rates increasing on the longer end without a similar move elsewhere? 
Great point. I think, um, you know, global rates do provide sort of a soft ceiling on the tenure. But how wide can that spread go? We do expect bonds to sell off a little bit, but we expect treasuries to really underperform. I mean, but but there's a limit, right? Because if the Japanese investors can come into treasuries, European investors will find better yields in treasuries. So I think it's important to look at global rates. We are a little heartened by the fact that the PMI data is coming up a bit better. Uh, the pace of vaccinations picked up in Europe. So expecting some lift in those European uh, rates over the course of the year, and that's going to allow treasuries to continue to rise in, in yield. On a technical perspective, we've seen that institutions, pensions have been rebalancing into treasuries. You've had buying not only from overseas, but also internally to try in, in the U.S. to try to capture these yields to lock them in ahead of what some people think is going to be turbulence in risk assets. How much does that buying suppress yields and sort of act as a cap, at least in the near term, to how high rates could go? I think there is some of that, absolutely. We've seen uh, Treasury stripping data going up. And so I think if in in isolation, that would have potentially put a cap to how steep the curve could get. But here's <clears> the <throat> issue. The U.S. Treasury is issuing 20-year, 30-year, 10-year. They're issuing a lot of long-end paper. And we don't think they're going to start to cut back any of that, particularly if you're going to get another $4 trillion of overall fiscal package. So, you know, I think the pension buying helps. And it limits how steep the curve can go and how high long-end rates can go. But I don't think it's enough to offset all the treasury supply that we're good, that the market will have to take down over the next few months. Priya, we've been wrong so far on a big move in inflation, a big move in rates. What will be the catalyst to finally get rates move? Is it something about economic data or is it more about the financial system? I think it's about sustainability. I mean, it's the T word. It's how transitory is this? What the market, I think, is trying to grapple with is we know this economic data is great. This is all reopening, fiscal stimulus. Well, how much does behavior change? We're all becoming behavioral scientists. You know, does behavior change? Do we all start using up, uh, you know, pent up savings? And is that reopening related pickup in growth, does that translate into a sustained increase in demand and a sustained increase in inflation? And that's what the Fed's watching for as well. You know, we're a little skeptical that you'll get this massive pickup in catch-up uh, service spending over the next year. You know, if you took, didn't take a single vacation last year, do you take four vacations this year or six vacations? Unlikely. Well, so, you know, yeah, we still have yeah. a bit of a muted growth. But I think that's the key question. I think someone in the Keen household is trying, Priya. <laughs> Someone's trying to get four 11. vacations this year. TK's under no, pressure. No, I can't do 11. Priya Misra, TD Securities Global Head of Rate Strategy. Priya, great to catch up. Right now, this is really, really, really important because they were out front and early. David Rich is at Mount Sinai, his leadership with Mount Sinai, Queens as well. And they've been out front in the pandemic with the sirens on the upper, upper east side, uh, with the agony of their staff getting through the last 14 months. And now the celebration that we're beginning to see that, yes, things are better. Yes, things are, quote, Almost over. Dr. Rich joins us for an update. David Rich, what is the almost over measurement right now as we go into a wonderful spring weekend? Can you call pandemic ending soon? Well, I, I'm not quite that optimistic, Tom, but I, I think we're moving in a great direction here. Uh, the peak that we saw in the New York region in the second wave in January has gradually come down, but it's coming down at a much slower rate than what we see previously. 
What uh, we're seeing in our health system is that now there are uh, between 200 and 250 patients. The number varies a little bit day by day. And uh, the peak was uh, somewhat over 500 in January. So it is a very slow decline, but we're learning to manage and to live with this disease in our health system as we try to do everything else to maintain the health of New Yorkers. Dr. Rich, we've been talking about CDC guidance around people who have been vaccinated and guidance in terms of what they can and cannot safely do. And there is a question of whether their decision is being driven from a scientific basis or whether it's being driven from a political basis to get people to do things in a certain way uh, to message that there isn't a bifurcation in the haves and the have nots. What's your view on science's role in dictating based on both the science as well as the political and ethical uh, methods that are going going on? I think that the the role of science is to provide data, but also uh, let's not forget that there is a branch of medicine, medical ethics, that also has very important things to say. And I believe that uh, medical science, medical ethics can inform public health officials, including the CDC, as as they make very important decisions. I was impressed by reading the New York Times article, I think just yesterday, about a, a concept of a two out of three rule where we consider uh, indoor versus outdoor settings, uh, vaccination status, uh, distancing, masking, as very important ways that we can move forward. And I expect that we'll see evolution in the way that our states and our, uh, and frankly, the federal guidelines evolve as a greater proportion of the population is vaccinated. Dr. Rich, I've got to go to your direct skill because it's really important right now. And this is, of course, the hematology of Thomas Jefferson, the Cardezo Foundation. Your opinion, please, on the blood study of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, the blood? I, I'm not sure which blood the clotting, study you're the, the, clotting, the, clotting, yeah. the clotting worries of the J&J. My fault. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, This is a very, very rare phenomenon. It's actually interesting. As a cardiac anesthesiologist, we know a variant of this type of problem very well over the years, uh, a syndrome called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which is where a drug that we use to thin the blood and prevent clots uh, to facilitate heart surgery uh, causes a rare immunologic reaction, which is the same thing, antibodies to a type of uh, platelet receptor, uh, PF4, And when that happens, it's a paradoxical thing because it causes clots, as we've seen some very severe clots in the brain uh, and uh, potentially in other parts of the body. But it is so exceedingly rare that I'm very optimistic that the CDC, ASIP, the the group that advises Mm -hmm. the CDC on uh, uh, immunization, will probably proceed with a, a warning saying there is a very, very rare risk, but the real risk of dying from COVID probably vastly outweighs the risk of this very rare hematologic problem, uh, perhaps you know by a million fold. We'll have to see uh, exactly what the scientists that advise the CDC okay. come out with. So in the, in the times of past of diphtheria and typhoid, we just said, shut up and take the vaccine, take the medicine, take the antibiotic, whatever. What will be your prescription for our viewers and listeners once we get done with the CDC study? 
Well, as uh, as someone who's followed this, I, I, I am an advocate for vaccination. And I think that uh, um, although it's always challenging in society to make things mandatory, uh, perhaps in certain employment settings, especially where there's higher risk, we may as a society decide that mandatory vaccination is a reasonable thing to do in certain circumstances. Already, uh, certain educational institutions are thinking about what it means to come back onto campus for students and potentially requiring vaccination mm-hmm. for all students. So I think we already well, see examples of that in society. Dr. Rich, thank you so much. With Mount Sinai this morning, and of course, with his expertise on hematology as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.